It is unfortunate for some people that their worst moments are sometimes captured on film or in photographs or on video. I mean, you know, and it happens a lot to people who are in front of a camera, it seems like. I guess that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, Kanye West this week was trying to figure out how he got himself into a mess, wasn't he? And, um, and it wasn't too long ago that Steve Harvey, before an international crowd, had that look on his face when he announced the wrong young lady as the winner for the Miss Universe contest in 2015. If you remember, in 2017, um, Warren Beatty had this look on his face when he announced the wrong winner of the best picture at the whatever show that was and all. And then there's just no place to hide when that happens, is there? I mean, like, you're in front of millions of people who are seeing it on live TV, and if that isn't enough, tomorrow morning on the Today Show, they'll be showing it live again. And then if that's not enough, it's on the Internet, and people are clicking it all the time for all eternity to come until there's something to replace the Internet. They'll be clicking and seeing what you've just done in front of all these people, all right? And then the other thing that's really unforgettable and uncomfortable are tests, aren't they? Anybody here really hate taking tests? Yeah, thank you very much. I see that hand. Yeah. Um, yesterday afternoon, the wedding ceremony was over at the ETS campus in Princeton. That just demonstrated how many people are taking tests. That is a humongous campus over there. And, and people just crumble underneath the pressure of taking tests. Look at this test here. So I don't know, it's, um, you know, someone, one of you will probably know what this test is about here, but the dude didn't know how to answer the question, so he drew an elephant into the equation, and then he says, there's no way this works because there's an elephant in the way. <laughs> now, last week I gave you a test, you know, a little quiz here in church, and I just said, it's C or the longest one. We can now add drawing an elephant into your test and saying that you don't know the answer that's in the way. That's another way of getting out of a test, isn't it? Well, Abraham, Abraham had some of those moments as well. Open up your Bibles to Genesis 12. We're going to start there and move through. Abraham, some of those incidents as well. They were not all his best moments in life. And we, here we are reading about them centuries later. <clears throat> but also, Abraham also underwent tests that his results are also posted for us, not on a wall like at school or something like that, but posted for us in Scripture. And we get to see his, his moments, his tests, how his outcome, his tests go. And sometimes those were not his best moments, but there were other times when those moments were huge steps of faith and obedience. And, and if there are times in the scripture where he misstepped or where he chose to disobey or he faltered in his faith, we are not looking at those things like going, oh, you know what, I don't know how he got that wrong because I would have done it, you know. We're looking at those things like going, what can I learn from this? How can I take his lesson his example, and apply it to my own life? How can I apply it to maybe a situation I'm going through in my life today? So we're going to start in, in chapter 12, and we're going to pick up several sections through chapter 22, the, the story of Abraham here. And I'm looking at seven tests that Abraham 
had in, in, these, in these passages. And we're going to look at those tests, kind of look at what they were, and then we're going to look at how we could apply that to our own personal lives. All right? So the very first test, you look at it in Genesis 1, 12, 1 through 7, and by now most of you should probably have this memorized, you know. Um, the gist of it is this. The Lord says to Abraham, he lives in Ur. He lives far away in Mesopotamia. And God comes to him there and he says, Abraham, he says, I want you to leave here and go to a place I'm going to show you. I want you to leave everyone you know, everything you know, and just go to the place I'll show you. And when you get there, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Verse 2, I'm going to make you so that you'll be a blessing. And verse 3, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in all the families of the earth, you shall be blessed. And then when Abraham, and, and, and in verse 4 says, and when Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And you go on and you see that he says, he arrives in verse 7, and the Lord says, to your descendants I will give this land. Abraham built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Genesis 1, 12 through 7, 12 there, this, this first test is this. Do you, do you trust God with your future? Is his will part of your decision-making? Some of you probably in a position right now where you're like going, well, my future is pretty standard. I mean, like, you know, I'm not, there's nothing new and exciting happening in my life. And then I know, like for the Nichols over here, their future is like up in the air right now. They're in the middle of having to make a move and stuff. And so other, other, some of us are, are like very dynamic <laughs> in our life at the moment. And some of us are very same as it ever was. But needless to say, at some point or another, we come to a place, even when it's the same as it ever was, and you have to pause and say, do I trust him for my future? Do I believe that whatever is coming down this path at me, whatever is at the end of the tunnel, is that train lights or is that daybreak? Whatever that is down there. Do I trust him that whatever is waiting for me at the end of the tunnel is going to be something that he has put there for me? Because that's just how sovereign he is. Because that's just how in control he is. Because that's just how much he's concerned and interested and involved in my life. That he's the one that put that there. Whatever it is at the end of the tunnel, he's in charge of that. Do we trust him with our future like that? And if we do... What does that mean about making decisions? What does that mean about making decisions? Now, I'm about to skip from one test to another a little bit, but you just kind of have to do that. And that's to, so think of it like this. If the question is, if, is his will part of my decision making? If I've trusted him with my future and I need to make a decision, then it's this kind of thing It says, wow, I really sense that he's, asking me to do this thing. And this thing that he's asking me to do makes no sense at all. Do I trust his will, his desire for me to be good, to be sovereign, to be something he's working for his own glory? It is exactly what Abram had to do in, chapter, in this chapter 12 passage. I mean, this makes no sense. 
to leave everything you know, to leave your, your business, you know, in chapter 1 there, to leave everything you know, to leave your business, and to go to a place where you have nothing. It's not like you have a job waiting on you. You haven't gone ahead and bought a house. It's not waiting on you. There's nothing waiting on you. The only thing waiting on you in this test is God's promise. That when you arrive, He's made a promise to you. And that promise will be true. So promise number one, do I trust God with my future? Is His will a part of my decision? That is one where we step into whatever he has laid out for us without a lot of details often, without a lot of certainty. See, as people, we always want to know how it's going to work out. You know, one of the, I mean, one of the things that churches do horribly, I mean, there's a lot of things we do horribly, an awful lot, all right? But one of the things we don't do well is we don't recruit people or volunteer people and tell them what we want them to do. We say, would you be willing to... Um, would you be willing to uh, set up chairs? And that might be all we do sometimes. We don't tell you when. We don't tell you how many always. We just kind of ask you to step into this void and all. But you know what people do? They always say, when do I need to be there? How often do I have to be there? How many chairs do you want up? What configuration do you want? There's loads of questions that people want to know before they say, they feel comfortable saying, yes, I'll do this. And so do you think that Abraham gets this directive from God and says, hey, I want you to walk away from everything you have and follow me to a place I'm going to show you. And Abraham didn't have a lot of questions. How will I know when I get there? What's the path I'm taking? What's going to happen when I get there? Is there a job? Is there a house? And there's nothing. There's only silence to all those questions. I bet some of you have experienced that, haven't you? Silence when you ask those questions. That silence is not an indication that he didn't hear you. It's a call. It's an invitation to just trust him. To just trust him. Until you get there. Just like Abraham did. Genesis 2 is our second one. Genesis, the second test that Abraham had to take is found in Genesis 13, 8 through 13. And, and we, we talked about, we, we looked at this recently. Genesis 8 through 13. Here, Abraham and Lot have come into the land, and their flocks are huge. Between the two of them, they have just an overload of animals that they're grazing on the land. And they have herdsmen who are who are working these animals. And they've come into a place and, and they're all trying to manage this one particular area and, they, and their herdsmen are arguing and so Abraham and Lot come together and they say, we should split up. You take yours one way and I'll take mine the other way and, and that way there's not any conflict. There's, no, there's nothing happening. And so they do that. They disagree to do that. And then Lot, Lot, well, Lot, in his own self-centered desire, Lot chose the very best land. And he says, I'll take this land. And Abraham went, hmm, all right. So here's, here's the question for test number two. Do I trust God with my interests even when I seem to be receiving an unfair deal? 
Do I trust God with what's happening in my life, with what I've been given, even though it might seem unfair? The principle here you have to kind of maybe realize is very, very similar to the principle in the other test, and that's that, is God in control or not? Now, again, we have a really difficult time, don't we, of feeling like someone might be taking advantage of us, of feeling like that it might not be going the way we want it to go, of thinking that perhaps this is going to end really badly for me. And here's Abraham who took the lesser decision and he gave the other better land to Lot. And the test is this. He believed that God was going to take care of him either way. And if you look at the passage, if I'm not mistaken here, if we look at the passage, what happens is that the Lord, says to, uh, the Lord says to him, if it's in this passage or the next one, that he goes, all this is going to be yours someday. I don't care what you just gave away. It's all going to be yours and your descendants someday. So isn't it difficult? Isn't it a test when we are in a situation where we don't feel like it's fair, when we don't feel like that it's going to be what we think we need, and we have to say and we have to just hunker down and go, is God in control of this? Is God going to take care of me even in this circumstance? That's a test, isn't it? Because the thing that kicks in, and, and when you think about that, uh, again, I'm, I can imagine right now that each one of us could think of an instance where we've been in this situation. Where a business deal, I don't know what it may be, um, your, your check at Applebee's, I don't know what it may be. You know, just something where you're like, going, this isn't right. This is more than I'm supposed to pay, or, or this is, I'm supposed to get more money than this, or it's, this isn't right. And, and we feel like that we're, we're missing something, that we're not getting what's ours. And then you come to this place, and you're like going, is God big enough to control this? Is God big enough to fill in the gap here? Is God really involved in this instance here? And what happens is, is so often we feel like we have to step in and fix it, don't we? Don't we? I mean, I'm, 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 I am always having to say I'm sorry to somebody because I've stepped in to fix something instead of waiting on the Lord to fix it better, more permanently. If you just identified with that scenario of realizing that you often step into places and you often try and fix it yourself, then you just became Abraham in the story, didn't you? Because when there was a famine in the land, he went into, I'll fix this. And he went to Egypt. And it didn't work out well for him. Just like it probably didn't work out for you and I when we tried to fix it ourselves. When we felt like that we couldn't uh, trust God with our interests and we needed to step in and help out God a little bit. Because, you know, he wasn't here today. I hadn't heard from him today. And we fixed it ourselves. Test number three. Genesis 14, Genesis 14, 17 to 24. This is the story we talked about last week. Abraham has gone out and he's gone to rescue Lot because Lot has been taken hostage, captive from these invading armies. 
And so Abraham and his men go and they chase down the invading armies. They overtake them. They overpower them. They take back all the captives, including Lot and all the possessions. And they're coming home. And as they come home, the king of Sodom comes out and he goes, hey, thank you so much. I tell you what, I'll take the people and you just take all of the loot. You take all the possessions. And at the same time, the king of Salem comes out, Melchizedek, and he blesses Abraham, and Abraham pays a tithe, a tenth of the possessions, or pays a tenth to Melchizedek. And so test number three, test number three is this. Am I careful to give God all the credit and the praise that he's due and most definitely deflect any glory from myself to God? You see, that one right there, it's this. What Abraham did in that is he said to the king of Sodom, he goes, I will not take a thread from you. I will not even take the thong, the shoelace. Let's just put that in the right context here. I won't even take a shoelace off of you because I don't want any man to say that they made me great because that's what God is doing in my life right now. Now this is a test that Abraham got extra credit on right here. Are we careful that when things do go our way, when we do see things prospering, and that's even what we're saying here at Crossing. You heard Steve say it a few moments ago. And, and, you're, and if you're coming to the elders update after the church today, you're going to hear it said there. But this is something we as a church need to practice right now today. Because a year ago today, we were not making budget. At the end of the year, we did not make budget. And we came when we talked to you guys about it, we began to pray about it. And right now, I don't even know, Carl would tell you the numbers. He's the numbers guy. I just shake my head and I'm really happy when Carl talks these days. Carl, you know, like we are ahead of budget. And our finances are good. But I would never say that's because we change things. I would never say it's because we have a great program. I would never say it's because we have a great worship team. I'd never say it's because we have a great preacher. I'd never say any of that stuff. I'd never say any of that stuff. I would say that we have money right now because God's given it to us and to him gives all the glory and all the credit forever and ever. Amen. He gets the credit for that. I can't tell you why we have more money now than we did a year ago. I, you know, I don't know what your finances are. I know that God supplies it for us. And that's the way we do it here. People say, they'll say to us, like, when do, we, when do we give? Don't we have an offering plate or something? No, because we don't want any man to say that they gave because we put a plate in front of them. This is a great application of that. We don't want any man to say they gave because we put a plate in front of them. We want to say that people gave because God compelled them out of, out of the, the work he's doing in their lives to say, I've got to give back to him. My church has those funky little boxes, and I'm going to put my money in there because I'm giving God credit for what he's done in my life. And that's why we do the giving the way we do it here. Because it's, it's our way of saying we don't want to take credit for anything that people give. We, want the, we don't want them to say we have a good giving system at Crossing. That's why we give. We, we do it this way so that it's between you and God alone. Here's this one. When things do go well, when you do get that scholarship, when you do get that new client, when you do get something that's, that's benefiting you, do you look at it and say, you know what, this is because I've done a great job? Or do you look at it and say, God has blessed me, and I'm giving him the credit for that, and I'm giving him the glory of that, and I'll deflect that glory from myself to him. Test number four, 
After these things, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. You know what's really, really interesting about that passage? Is what just happened in chapter 14. Actually, this is a bonus. This is not part of the test at all. I just really like this verse. All right, what just happened in chapter 14? Chapter 14, Abraham had just gone into war. And he had just said to the king of Salem, to the king of Sodom, I don't want all your possessions. I want to be able to say that God is making me great. Isn't it interesting that the very next verse, chapter 15, verse 1, he goes, I am your shield. This is a dude who just came out of war. He understands what God is talking about. And then not only that, he goes, and I am your reward. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Here's a man who just came out of war and just turned away a great reward for what he had done in battle, and God says to him, Abraham, Abraham, I'll be your shield. And not only that, but I am your reward. Man, that preaches. That dog will hunt. That is so great right there. Okay, back to the test. All right? And so Abraham said, Oh, Lord God, that you would give to me, since I'm childless, the heir, he's asking, is the heir of my house Eliezer of Damascus? Basically, this is a young man that lives in his home who is a servant. And he's saying to God, who is my child? Who is this going to be this heir that you talk about? All we have is Eleazar. And Abraham said, since you've given me no offspring to someone who's born in my own house, this is him, right? And then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man is not your heir, but one who shall come from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside now and looked toward the heavens and count the stars. And if you're able to count them, he said, so shall your descendants be. And then he believed the Lord, and and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Wow, that is a great, great passage right there. And so here, Abraham, God, God has restated his promise to him. And so this is the test here. When you're uncertain, when you're not sure that things are working out, when you're really doubtful about that you're in the right place, This example, this little test that Abraham just went through is the template for us. And it's going back and going, and it's like, this is God's promise to me. I will have an heir from my own body, and it's not Eleazar. God's promise to me is that I will have an heir from my own body. And so what he says here in in, in the test four is, how often do I consciously reaffirm God's promises to myself? There, there is not a day goes by that I bet you don't get discouraged. There's not a day goes by that I bet you don't get disillusioned. And when Abraham got disillusioned, God affirmed his promise to him all over again. And Abraham had to stop and pause and say, this is the promise he made. That my descendants would be like those stars. Reminding ourselves of the promises God has made to us. Chapter 15, 7 through 11 is test number 5. And he said to him, God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, 
How may I know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer. And what happens in this passage is that God makes a covenant with him, an ancient covenant. It was something that we know that happens culturally throughout the Middle East at this day and time. And they cut the animals in half and they would walk through them. And so here is Abraham. And he's given the land by faith, though he has not taken possession of it yet. Not even possession of it for hundreds of years, he doesn't. And so the fifth test is this. How do I demonstrate my continued trust in God when I have to wait? How do I demonstrate my continued trust in God when I have to wait? God's walking through and he's made a covenant with him. And he says, this is what I'm going to do. Look, I'm making a covenant with you. I am not a covenant breaker. I am not a promise breaker. I've told you this is what we're going to do. But now I'm going to make this covenant with you so you're sure. So now Abraham has to say, how do I live in such a way that I know this is going to be true? How do you live to do that? That's something that no one can answer except for you. When you know something is true, but it's not yet, it is still wait. The beauty of this is that I can't answer it for you about how that's going to be true in your life. But what we can say is this, is that God promises peace in horrible circumstances. We don't know how he does that. I don't understand that. It's not something that we can rub a lamp and it appears. It's not something that I can hunker down and pray and fast and it's just going to happen. God, in his own time, in his own sovereignty, he steps into our broken hearts. He steps into our confusion and he gives peace that passes this, you know, all comprehension. And this particular thing here is this thing is that when, when I know that he's made a promise and I'm uncertain and I'm doubting, the thing that we have is that the, the sureness of that promise ought to be the kind of thing where when we are doubting, we can say, I will not fear. I will hold sure. Not because I see it coming, not because I understand how it's going to happen, but because he said so, I will not be shaken. That's probably the very best way. That's the easiest answer to how we demonstrate a continued trust in God when we're still waiting. The sixth test, chapter 18, verses 22 and 23. You, if you remember, this is when Abraham became a negotiator with God. He demonstrated a skill that few of us have, and he seemed to be fairly successful at it because what has happened is God has said to him, I'm going to go down to Sodom and destroy it. And, and Abraham says, well, wait a minute. What happens if there's some righteous people there? And Abraham begins to talk to the Lord about Sodom. And it's this whole passage here is really what we should be looking at here. And God, Abraham begins to talk to God about Sodom, and he begins to plead with him. What if there's a few righteous there? What if there's 50, 40, 30, 20, 10? And he's praying for the city. He's praying for them. Now, there is nothing similar between Abraham's character and the character of Sodom. One is seeking holiness, one is seeking obedience to God, and the other one is in such absolute rebellion against God that he is sickened by their sin. And so the test here in number six is this. How often do I pray for those who are clearly in the wrong? Am I eager to see them punished? How often do I pray for those who are in the wrong? There's there's stories of believers who have gone before us, even some even today, 
who have demonstrated this in such a great way. I told you about it recently when I talked to you about Tortured for Christ and the movie and the episode, the scene in there where every night he prays, right? And the guard comes and he says, you're not allowed to pray, and he beats him. And every night he does this, and every night the guard, and so finally one night the guard opens the door and he says, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you praying? You know what's going to happen. What could you still be praying for? That's exactly what this scene is. And, and he says, what could you still be praying for? And Wormbrand, the Mr. Pastor Wormbrand, looks up and he goes, I'm praying for you. And he breaks the guard with his compassion. God's spirit breaks the guard. Because even though Pastor Wormbrand was being clearly done wrong to, and even though most of us would really want to see him be punished, his walk with the Lord was in such a way that he was still praying for his persecutor. He was still praying for the one who was beating him. He was still praying for those who were wrong. In your life, there's probably a boss, an employee, a coworker, a neighbor, a family member, for sure, probably, who this principle applies to. And so even though you've been wronged, do you still pray for them? Do you long for there to be reconciliation? Do you long for there to be rightness between you? Or does your heart still seek punishment? Not an easy test at all, brothers and sisters, at all. So finally, test number 7, chapter 22, 1 through 12. And this is, this is a part of Abraham's story we haven't really gotten to yet, but you know it's there. And this is the story where God says to Abraham, take your son, your one and only son, and take him up to Mount Moriah there and sacrifice him. That's what this passage is about. And the passage tells of Abraham's response. And, and I've already alluded to this. In, in another sermon, but let's look at it really quick. And so he says, let me do, and it came about, first one, and it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. Abraham responds, he goes, here I am. And he says, now take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I would tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And, he's, and, he, and he took split wood for the burnt offering. He rose and he went to the place of which God had told him. Test number seven says this. In what ways has your life demonstrated that you will not allow anything to get in the way of your walk with Christ? What Abraham has asked there is really, in our human context, just un unthinkable, isn't it? Just unthinkable. And yet Abraham had come to a place in his walk by now because he's been tested, he's been tried, he's been formed and shaped for I don't even know how many years by now. 60, 80, I don't know. And by this point, God says this unthinkable request for him. And Abraham says, you know what? I've learned that I'm going to obey you at all costs. I've learned that no matter what you ask of me, you have a plan. I've learned that you are good in all instances. I've learned all this about you. And so the next morning, he gets up, and he saddles the donkey. He takes the wood for the fire to sacrifice his son, and he leaves. 
unthinkable. And yet we see in Abraham here that he was not going to allow even his love for his one and only son. He was not going to allow his love for this son that God had been talking about for, gener- for, for decades at this point. He was not going to allow that, even that, to get between him and obeying God. And God rewarded him for it. Why would God do these things? Why would he lead us this direction or make this promise and take forever to complete it? Let me just, let me just ask you this. Why do we take tests in school? Talk to me. Why do you take tests in school? Oh, here's a teacher. Thank you very much. Can you say this in French, madame? All right. yeah. I don't understand your word you're saying. You better speak English. All right, what? To demonstrate what you know. Right, to demonstrate what you're able to do. And athletes and weightlifters, they don't stay at, at, at the same weight all the time. They're always trying to increase it, and so they're always pushing themselves. They're testing themselves to see how well they can do, how much they can lift, how far they can go, how fast they can run, how much they know, how much French they know, whatever it may be. They're testing themselves. And so here we are. We say that we want to become, you know, to become like him. And so how will we become like him unless he tests us and says, this is where you're at and this is where you need to be? In this life, we'll probably never get very many hundreds in these tests. We'll always be getting, uh, some of you get some 98s. Maybe you get a lot of 98s. I don't know. I mean, me, I'm usually in the D range, right? And I find a lot of you in that class with me, right? And so I'm in the D range, and I find that in my tests, I'm often falling short of that grade. But the beautiful, wonderful thing about that is, is he never comes in, and he never slaps my knuckles, and he never tells me how bad I am. He always tells me, that is great. This is what we still get to learn. Step forward, and let's keep going together. He's not a kind of God. He's not the kind of father. He's not the kind of school teacher who is going to denigrate us or embarrass us for failing or for not making the grade. He is the one who says, I am so happy with you. Now, step forward. Come on. Get up. Dust yourself off. Let's go again. Come on. We got more work to do. There's more, you know, multiplication to do, more formulas to learn, more lessons to learn. There's more to know. And all of that is all about what he's teaching on is there's more of me to know. That's what he's saying to us. There's more of me to know. There's more of learning how to trust me. There's more of learning how faithful I am, how loving I am, how compassionate I am. There's, there's more to me than your mind will ever hold. There's more to me than you will ever experience in this life, but I want you to experience it. I want you to have, what does he say? Abundant life. And we never have abundant life by skipping out on the tests. We never have abundant life when we avoid the tests. We never have abundant life when we've taken the test and perhaps failed it and walked away and says, not again. He is not that kind of Lord. He's not that kind of Father. He's not that kind of God. He's the kind of God that says, you know what? Moses flunked this test too. 
Now get up. Come on. Let's do this again. There's more of me to know. This morning, all of us, or most of us in this room, know Christ probably. And we are all in a journey, but we all have our own lane. And in that lane, he is calling each of us at different places in that path, in that lane, in that journey. He's calling us to our different tests. And there are, I mean, he's God. There's infinite more tests than we have covered here today, but seven's a good starting point for me. I don't know about you. And he's saying, here, come, let me test you a little bit. Let's let's learn where you need to grow. Let's learn what you, you need to learn so that you can continue to grow and know me better. Then there's some of us, perhaps it's in this room today, that has never placed their faith in Christ and doesn't understand what that means. And in that context, he's asking you to simply trust him in a new way, one way you've never done before, and that's by saying that I understand that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior, and I can't be that Savior. Saying that to yourself. You come into a place where you realize that you can't fix your sin problem and you need someone else to do it. Jesus is that someone. Jesus is the one who's stepping into your life this morning with these words and with his Holy Spirit being active. And he is saying, I forgive you of your sins. I wash you clean of your shame. I wash you clean of your guilt. And I'll never count these things against you again. And today, quite honestly, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, this is a test. Right now, the words that are coming out of my mouth is a test for you right now. And he's asking you, will you trust me for the forgiveness of your sins? Or will you hang on to it and try and do it some more yourself? Only you can take that test. Only you can give us that answer, give God that answer. This morning, I'm praying that you give him the answer And you say to him, I'll pass this one. I'll trust you for the forgiveness of my sins. Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank you very much for your presence. Thank you very much that your great love for us and the way that you love us, the way that you test us, the way that you bring us along, the way that you long for us to know you better. And so these tests, these things that are happening are never about embarrassment. They're never about chastising. They're never about humiliating us. They're always giving us the opportunity to know you and to love you better. May we embrace each test. And even when we fail, may we embrace you and find you to be fully forgiving, fully accepting, and loving. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.